0: Said that people probably just heard that we were both preaching. So, <laughs> oh, just preaching, ah. just teaching, yeah, like wait, he's teaching on the ascension. Uh, we can continue, Plaque Man, yeah. uh, it's much more important. Yeah, I don't know. No, I'm just, actually, I'm kind of (laughs) finding it difficult to stand, so. Huh? No, I, actually, I can't. It's difficult for me to teach sitting down. It's weird. I have to move. You know. (laughs) Ready? All right. Well, tonight, we are continuing our series, and We finished the series, Crushed for Our Iniquities, which was mainly about the death of Jesus. And we looked at the glory of Jesus Christ in his death and in his substitutionary death on our behalf. And then we looked at the glory of Christ in, in the resurrection. And, you know, if I were going to ask some Christian trivia questions this evening, I'm sure some of the easiest ones would be, What day, what day is it on which we celebrate the birth of Jesus? December twenty fifth. Christmas, right? That's when we celebrate as the church universal the the birth of, of Jesus. And then on what day do we celebrate the death of Jesus? Good Friday right? Okay, we just did that recently, so that was in your mind. And on what day do we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus? Resurrection Sunday, right? That's very easy. But if I were to ask you this question, on what day does the church celebrate the Ascension? Would you be able to answer? And I'm not going to ask anyone to do it. Someone can give a guess. Um, But the Ascension is actually a Christian holiday. Um, It's not celebrated by Protestants very often, but if you go by a Catholic church, the day that they celebrate the Ascension, they celebrate what's called the Feast of Ascension. And it is a, it is a feast celebrated with much food and, and much fun. And, and, it's, and it's a big celebration. And, and just to help you out, it's, it's 40 days after the resurrection because Jesus... Um, ascended 40 days after the resurrection and so it's 40 days after the resurrection I'm not sure which day of the week it's traditionally celebrated on but it's 40 days after Christ's resurrection that we celebrate the ascension but I think it sort of belies a certain fact that we don't celebrate the resurrection in in Protestantism Uh, we we don't celebrate the ascension Um, we don't celebrate that day and why is that? And I think that 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 tells us something that maybe we don't grasp the theological significance of the ascension. Maybe we don't understand why it is significant. We saw the glory of Jesus and his death and and we celebrate that. We have Good Friday and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and, and we remember that and we celebrate the birth of Jesus. I mean, the Christian calendar is framed by those holidays. You know, we have Christmas and then we have uh, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, but why is it that we don't celebrate the ascension? And I think it's because we don't understand why we don't understand why it's significant. As a matter of fact, if we think about it, the day that Jesus actually left, that the day that he, he left and he was actually completely gone, I mean why would that even be a day of celebration? Jesus left us. I mean he's gone and, and we know that he's going to come again and we wait for that moment and and really we don't I, I'm not sure that we understand the significance of going away, and if we don't know why it's important that he went away, well, we wouldn't celebrate that. We might lament that, right? Because we'd like to have Jesus with us. And, and there's several reasons we could consider for celebrating Ascension. There's several reasons that we could consider that are that are relevant, and none of which we're going to we're going to consider at at length this evening, but there are reasons for the kingdom of God, for example. In Philippians chapter 2, it tells us, right, because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, and then for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name. And this has to do with the kingdom of God. Um, in John 17, um, verse 5, Jesus said, you know, glorify me again with the glory that, we, that I had before the ages began, right? We know that Jesus was glorified as he went to the right hand of the Father. In Acts chapter 2, verse 33 um, whenever Peter is preaching, he says, "Having Jesus having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth that this which you both see and hear." And he talks about how Jesus has has been has been seated at the right hand of the Father. In First Timothy three sixteen, it says that Jesus was taken up in glory. In Ephesians chapter one verses twenty through twenty one, it says. It speaks of Jesus, whom he he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't just he didn't just disappear into nothingness, but he went to a place he went into heaven to be seated at the right hand of God, which is called by many theologians uh, the session of Christ, which means to be seated. And it's, it's a, it was a technical term used of kings where they sit in their place of authority, the place where they reign from. And we know that after Jesus' humiliation, he was exalted to this place of great authority. In um, First Peter chapter 3, verse 22, it says... Jesus, who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. And so the ascension of Jesus has implications for the kingdom of God, right? And, and Jesus right now has all authority and he has been been placed in a place of, of supreme authority and he rules. And there is this period um, now where he is bringing all things underneath his reign and his rule and. And his kingdom is invisible, but one day it will be visible. today it is the job of Christians to make the invisible reign of Jesus visible to the world by the way we behave. And we are a community of people who show what it means to be in a commonwealth ruled by Jesus. And we show the world what it means to be ruled by the King of Kings. And we make the invisible reign of Jesus visible to the world. And so, and that is, and so the ascension of Jesus has implications for the kingdom of God. And also, uh, the ascension of Jesus has implications for the intercession of Jesus. We know that Jesus is our high priest and he entered into a tabernacle not made with human hands, not of this creation, but he entered into a, a tabernacle in heaven where he offered his blood before God. And, and in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, and really the high priesthood of Jesus is is explicated in every single chapter of the book of Hebrews. It's the book that we get all the teaching about the priesthood of Jesus. But in Hebrews 725, it says, therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And right now, Jesus is before the throne of God interceding for his people. And so the ascension of Jesus has to do with this intercession for us. But. There are those, and there are many reasons we could consider tonight. But I want to, I want us to examine the teaching of Jesus on the subject of the ascension and why it is important to us, and why we should celebrate the ascension, and why it should be a a it should be something that is precious to us and something that we look forward to on the church calendar, something that we consider significant because this is important. Because uh, as the old creeds you know read, it talks about Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, right? And, and he was persecuted under Pontius Pilate. And he was crucified, dead. And he was buried. And he was raised on the third day. And all these things. And then it says he ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God. And this is something that's been celebrated by the church. And that's something that we would maybe take out of our creeds. Because we don't, we don't see the significance of it. And so I want us to turn to the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 14. And we're going to look, and I want you to turn there, in John chapter 14. We're also going to turn to John chapter sixteen. But I want us to look at the teaching of Jesus about his ascension. And here Jesus is doing what is called his upper room discourse. And, and particularly this section is what's called his farewell discourse. He's he's talking to disciples and he's telling them he's going to leave them. And and he runs into a particular problem. We're going to see this as we see the teaching of Jesus. But Jesus is going to leave them and he's preparing them for his departure. Jesus has been their leader and, their, and he's been everything to them. Jesus is everything to the disciples and he's about to depart. And he's trying to explain to them what's going to happen whenever he leaves. And so I want you to see this. Look at John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you after a little while. The world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and, he, and, I, and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, starting in verse 5. He says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me where are you going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and concerning sin... Because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And what he will disclose to you, he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me for... He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Let us pray together briefly. Father, we thank you so much for these words that are given to us by your Holy Spirit and preserved. And we we thank you for the teaching of Jesus on this most important of subjects. And I pray that you would help us to understand it, even though... These things are difficult for us to understand. God, we need your grace to understand these things. I need your grace to explain them. And God, help us and give us strength to understand your truth and what it means for our lives and what it means for um, our relationships to you and to one another. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, Jesus is in this section uh, of of Scripture, addressing a real pastoral problem. And and I guess I could ask the question this way, and I could help you understand the problem that the disciples had and, and the problem that Jesus understood that they had. Now, if you could have present with you today either Jesus Christ physically present instead of me teaching. You could have Jesus physically here in front of you and teaching you and walking among you and instructing you and, and spending time with you and you could be with him and you could have that. Or you could have, in the capacity that you already do have, if you are a believer in Jesus, if, if you could have instead um, the Holy Spirit, which one would you choose? If you could say, well, if I, would, if I could have Jesus or if I could have the Holy Spirit... In the way that I already have him, which which one would I exchange one for the other, and to us it almost seems like um, it almost seems like a no brainer we'd say we want Jesus, we want Jesus to be among us, we would like to have Jesus physically here present with us and and it's because we, we seem to think you know we, we know Jesus, we understand him, I want to see what he looked like. I want to see the color of his eyes and if he really did have long hair and and if he really did look like those paintings or whatever, or I'd like to be with him and have him teach me, instruct me. But but what Jesus says here is that it is to our advantage that that he leaves. He says it's actually more advantageous for him to go away and for us to have the Holy Spirit instead. And for us to have the Holy Spirit. And this is something that the disciples simply could not understand because Jesus was everything to the disciples He was their teacher and their leader and their counselor and their comforter and everything. And and they looked to him for strength and for guidance. And the fact that he was going away was was filling their hearts with sorrow, as we have seen. Their hearts were were filled with, with, with sorrow and they were terrified. But Jesus explains to them that it's actually to their advantage that he leave them. It's actually better that he go away. And there's something about him leaving that is more advantageous about, about him leaving than him staying here. There was something better about the Spirit's presence, which Christ thought to be thought to be advantageous for them. And this is mysterious. And indeed, this is what Christ is attempting to explain to his troubled disciples. In John 16, 14, I want us to not miss this. He says... Of the Spirit, he will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. He's speaking of the Spirit glorifying him. and, And sometimes I guess that leads people to maybe diminish the role of the Holy Spirit, saying, well, all he does is really glorify Jesus. And so, you know, obviously Jesus is better. Right. But we need to accept this as an axiom of the Christian life. Jesus in his. Ministry glorified the Father. He didn't glorify himself, but he sought to glorify the Father. But that never gives us an excuse to glorify the Father over against Jesus, right? And the Spirit glorifying the Son doesn't give us an excuse to glorify the Son over against the Spirit. As a matter of fact, the, the members of the Trinity mutually glorify one another. And they seek to magnify and glorify each other. And they seek to... because they, they have a love for one another. And just as Christ's mission was to glorify the Father... It's no justification for neglecting Christ. And, and, and so just because the Holy Spirit's mission is to glorify the Son, it is no, it is no excuse to, to diminish the role of the Holy Spirit. And I think that this is done in the church quite a bit because, like I said, we, don't, we simply don't grasp the importance that Jesus has gone away. And he's left us with his, with his spirit and what the ascension means for us. We glorify the Holy Spirit and the Son along with the Father, and this is our privilege. But Jesus, like I said, is trying to explain to the disciples why it is to their advantage that He goes away. And He's speaking not of Him going away to be crucified, that is obviously to their advantage, but He's speaking of His ultimate going away. He says, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come. I'm going away to be with my Father. And I'm going, he says in 14 verses 1 through 3, that I'm going to prepare a place for you with my Father. And so he's talking about his ultimate ascension into heaven. And he says, this is better for you that I go away. And, And I think if we actually look at the teaching of Jesus here, we'll understand the way he tried to explain this to them. And I want us to see this. Basically what Jesus does is he says that everything that he was to them by his presence the Holy Spirit will be to them by His presence. He basically says, everything that I was to you while I was here, the Holy Spirit will be to you. And the Holy Spirit will actually be that even more so. In John chapter 14, Christ says three things about Himself, that He is the disciples. And and we're going to see these, I'm going to cover these really briefly and then more in depth. But Jesus says, for example in verses 23 through 24 that he was their teacher. He says, Jesus answered and said to them, if anyone loves me and keeps my word, and my father will love him and and will come to him and make our abode with him. He does not uh, he who does not love me uh, wait, he who does not love me does not keep my words and the and the words which you hear, the words which you hear is not mine but the father who sent me. And these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you and he speaks of his teaching Office And he's been among them as their teacher. And he says that that's what he has done quite a bit. He's also, he is their counselor. We see him actually doing this in the present passage. If you move up to chapter 14, the beginning, uh, Thomas has a very, a very pastoral question. He says, Jesus, you said you're going away. Where are you going? And, and we don't know where you're going because we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And he, and he counsels his disciples and, and he leads them and he, and he comforts them and he helps them understand these things. And also in verse 2, this is very fascinating. Look at chapter 14, actually starting verse 1. He says he says his, his third role that he plays out here. And so he says he's their teacher, he's their counselor. But look at this. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I'm going, there you may be. Also, and and Jesus speaks of himself here as, if I can use a very American term, he speaks of himself as a homemaker. He's going to prepare a home, a dwelling place with with them, or for them, with the Father. And what Jesus does in this passage is he identifies the work of the Holy Spirit in the same exact categories. If you look at verses 25 and 26, he says, The Holy Spirit is our teacher and our counselor. He says, Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, which can also be translated counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then again, in verse 16, he he says that he is that the Holy Spirit will be their counselor. He says, I will ask the father and he will give you he will give you another counselor that he may be with you forever. And if he says he's going to give you another, he's saying, and and the word is another of the same kind, he's saying another, meaning what I was to you, God is going to send another in my place to be your counselor. And then in verse 23 of chapter 14, he says, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And he says that, we will come to dwell with you. And we know from other passages that we will see that the way Christ, the way God, the Father and God, the Son, dwell with us is by the Holy Spirit. And that's how God makes his dwelling place with us. And so while Christ is going to prepare a place for us with the Father, the Holy Spirit comes and prepares a place in us for the Father and the Son. You see? And so the three things that Christ is, our, our teacher and our counselor and our homemaker, the Holy Spirit, is those very same things to us by His presence. And while Christ goes to make a dwelling place with the Father, the Holy Spirit comes so God may dwell with us. And Christ is saying to the disciples that when He leaves, rather than abandoning them, He will come to them through the Spirit. He says this in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. And this is a fascinating in a very good translation. He says, I will not leave you as one who has no home. I will not leave you as an orphan, but I will actually come to you. He's saying, when I go away, in some mysterious way, I will also come to you. Okay, and this is a present activity. And so, what Jesus is trying to explain here is, rather than stifling his ministry, his departure will further it. And it will be to their advantage to the disciples for him to go. And so I want us to look at these three ministries in turn. And I want to ask, what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our counselor and our homemaker? And whenever we understand these things, we will know why it is significant that Jesus ascended. We will, we will maybe want to celebrate the ascension. It will be an exciting thing for us, and we will see the theological significance of it, and we will celebrate it. And so, the first thing, what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher? And so, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. You can write teacher or something. But it means two things, really. It means two things. The Spirit will teach us the deep things of God, to use the language of the Apostle Paul. But if you look at John chapter 14, verse 20, he says... In that day, in that, and he says in that day, that means the day that the Holy Spirit comes upon them, the day that the Helper comes to them. He says, in that in that day, you will know that I am in my Father. Now, he says, in that day, you will grasp something for the first time. It doesn't say that something will become true for the first time. But he says, you will grasp something for the first time. You will understand that I am in my Father. Now, that is something that is difficult for us to grasp that is something that is i mean what is what's is the meaning of that preposition in what does it mean for the son to be in the father and for the father to be in the son and, well, i mean how can we understand that and also we learn about this in other places in in the gospel of john in particular in john chapter 1 verse 1 for example obviously that's one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And uh, He was in the beginning with God, and all, and, and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. But it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, but the Word was God. That's deep, right? And then in uh, John one eighteen, it says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten who is in the bosom. Of the Father, He has explained Him. Now, what does it mean for Jesus to be in the bosom of the Father, right? And and really, you know, it means that in a place of deep intimacy beyond compare. It means, and what does it mean for Him to be within Him? And also, the Spirit teaching us the deep things of God is is something that's taught elsewhere, uh, otherwise in the Bible. If you look at uh, First Corinthians chapter two. He speaks of the Spirit in verses 10 and following. He says, For to us God revealed Him through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And he says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man, except the Spirit of the man which is within him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught with human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. This is primarily aimed at the disciples, but this is specifically what Jesus is teaching the disciples. He says, whenever I go away, you will understand the deep things of God even more. And what Jesus is assuring them of is that their fear is misguided. You see, they thought that when Christ left, they would know him less but actually, they will know him more. Do you see that? They thought that they would no longer know their precious Jesus when he left. But he says, no, when I leave, you'll, you'll know me even more. You'll know more about me. You'll, you'll come to understand for the first time these things that you didn't comprehend while I was alive. And as a matter of fact, whenever we look through the Gospels, there are many things that the disciples didn't understand when Jesus first taught them, right? Um, They teach things, and Jesus taught in parables and things like this, and there were many things that they just didn't get. When Jesus talked about the temple being destroyed and and rebuilt in three days, right, it says that they did not understand that he was speaking of the temple of his body, right? And And also there are statements in the Gospels when Jesus is teaching that it says they didn't until later understand what Jesus was speaking about. And so when the Holy Spirit came, when the Spirit came to dwell in them, that's when they began to understand the deep things of God. And they didn't really, after the fact, I mean, they didn't understand the cross fully until after the fact. And they didn't understand who Jesus really was until after the Holy Spirit came upon them. And so, the Holy Spirit teaches us the deep things of God. And also, and so the first thing He teaches us is the deep things of God, but also the second aspect is that He will make us know the great heights of grace. And if you look back at the very verse that we just read in chapter 14, verse 20, it says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He says, Not only will you understand more about the deep things of God, meaning my relationship to God and who God is and who I am, but also you will understand more about my relationship to you. You will understand the great depths of God, but also the great heights of grace and what it means that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. I mean, this is an extremely um, important concept to understand for Christians. As a matter of fact, this is taught, for example, in the book of Colossians. And this is something that the Colossian church didn't understand. They didn't understand that Christ was in them and what that meant and what that fullness they had, what fullness they had received and what spiritual resources they had in Jesus. Um, Paul says this in Colossians chapter 1 verses 25 through 27. He says of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to His saints. What's the mystery? Well, to whom God willed to make known, what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles? What's the mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says this is an amazing mystery. And and of course, remember, we learned this even last time, that mystery in the Bible, the word uh, musterion, it, it refers to something that was concealed in the Old Testament, but is revealed in the New Testament, he says, this is a great mystery that Christ would actually come to live within you, that Christ would come to dwell inside you and that and that God wouldn't just be outside of you ministering to you, but that he would literally live within you and that he would empower you. He also explains more of what this means in chapter two, verses eight through ten. Look at this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, why? Why should you see to it very actively that no one takes you captive by these traditions of men and these empty philosophies? Well, the answer is in the next verses. He says, Because in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He says, In Jesus is all the treasures that you could ever want. That's why you don't go to the world's philosophies and you don't look to Oprah for your spiritual advice. And you don't read these foolish books that all these people buy into. and You don't stare into crystal balls. That's why you don't get taken captive. Because in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in body form. Look at verse 10. And in Him, you have been made complete. He says, not only that, but you are in Him. And in Him, you have been made complete. That is amazing. I mean, if we... If we understood this fully, just this truth, it would last us years and years and years in our Christian life. We say, I, I don't have a self-image problem. Why? Because I'm an image bearer of God who has the Spirit of God dwelling within me. I don't want to look like the person on TV or the supermodel or whatever. I want to look like Jesus Christ because the Spirit is within me. And I want to be like Him. I want to be more like Jesus And also, if we understood this fully, I think it would change the way we treat each other. Because if we understood that when we look at a brother or sister in Jesus Christ, we are looking at someone in in whom the Spirit of of God dwells. If we're looking at someone in whom the Spirit of Jesus dwells, I think that would change the way we talk to one another. I think if we understood what it meant whenever Jesus, remember he he struck Paul blind, and he said, Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my people? He says, to persecute them is to persecute me. Why? Because the body of Christ is where Jesus dwells, by His Spirit. And so, to insult a member of the body of Christ is to insult whom? It's to insult Jesus. Is to insult someone in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And I think that we need to understand this. And see, the disciples' great fear was that they would know Christ Less, But Jesus says, to truly know Him, they needed the Spirit, and for the Spirit to come, He needed to, be de- he needed to depart. Do you understand? They were afraid that they wouldn't know uh, their precious Jesus. But He says, when I, when I leave, I mean, you need me to leave, because to really know me, I've got to send the Spirit, and to send the Spirit, I have to depart. It's to your advantage that I go away. And the Spirit leads us and teaches us through the Scriptures, we know this, because the Scriptures are the sword of the Spirit, right? Okay, the, 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 the Scriptures are what Calvin called the, the, the royal scepter by which Christ rules us. That's what the Scriptures are, and the Scriptures are the sword of the spirits. And it's interesting, if you look in the book of Ephesians, when it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And to be filled in that context means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, okay? It means to be so filled that you're controlled by it. It's used of other people being filled with rage, such that it controlled their actions and things like this. And so to be filled with the Holy Spirit um, is used in Ephesians. But the parallel verse for that in the book of Colossians says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And so, to be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the truth of the Scriptures. But also, the Spirit leads us through the Scriptures, but also by his internal witness and illumination. We saw part of this in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2. But he says this in, in First Corinthians chapter two verses 14 and 15. He says, "A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually understood or appraised." But he who is spiritual appraises or understands all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one." He says, "Look, the unspiritual man just doesn't get this. That's why you have liberal scholars who claim to be Bible scholars and claim to be Christians, but they tear it apart. Right. And they try to reconstruct it and they do these foolish things and they play with their marbles and, you know, and vote on which sayings are really said by Jesus and ideal stuff. But it's because they can't understand it. They just I mean, they can intellectually put the concepts together, but they don't accept it. Right. Because that takes the spirit of God. It's this internal witness. And this is something that is absolutely fascinating. I think we need to understand. This is a teaching technique. This internal witness and this internal testimony. This is a teaching technique that is unique to the teaching of God what I mean by that is, maybe you've taught someone before. And I know Christian can maybe understand this, especially teaching the young ones. You're teaching someone, and they're just not getting it. And they just don't understand what you're saying. And you say, if I could only get inside your head. Like, if I could just get inside that brain of yours. If I could just reach you. If I could just be inside there. Right? That's something God can do. He can actually be inside our heads. He alone can get inside of us, get inside our heads and our hearts and, and help us understand the truth and lead us in it, right? Only God can do that. We can't do that. But the Spirit of God can do that. He is our teacher, externally and internally. And Jesus says, you need that. And if you look at the blockhead disciples and many of the things they said, they really needed that, right? And, and we need that. So it's to their advantage because the Holy Spirit will come as teacher. Well, also, in the second thing we want to look at is the Spirit is our Counselor. The Spirit is our Counselor. And this is going back to John chapter 14 verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all he said to you. says the Helper. And the Word can also be translated Counselor. Also, if you look at verse um, uh, 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse Let's see, verse 15. It says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments on the Father. We'll give you another, this is verse 16, another helper, that he may be with you forever. And the word here is an interesting word. It is a, it is a Greek word, and it's the Greek word parakletos. And many of you probably know that. It's, it's the Greek word parakletos or paraklete, right? We've maybe heard that word before. It's the name of the Holy Spirit in it. And really, in its most literal sense, it means someone who comes alongside, okay? Para means alongside, like parallel or, or um, parable, okay? Um, and paracletos, it means someone who comes alongside. And it has a wide range of connotations. And actually, there are a wide range of translations for this word. Um, the New American Standard translates it helper. Others translate it, the older translations say comforter. Um, it's also Counselor, an advocate. and advocate. And those are all possible meanings and renderings of this term, but what Christ has in mind, in all likelihood, are the legal connotations behind this word, because this is why it, it's translated advocate uh, in many translations, because advocate is a word for lawyer, um, in, mainly in the United Kingdom. And, um, and it speaks of an expert who helps and strengthens us in a time of need. It's used of a lawyer. And the word in the time of Jesus was a technical term for a lawyer who would give legal counsel and guidance. In fact, whenever Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit, he actually uses legal language in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. He says, and he, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. And this language of judgment and convicting, this is all very technical legal language that would skip our our understanding if we didn't really look into it. But he uses legal and judicial language to refer to the Holy Spirit. And and, and this is what the Holy Spirit does. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2 and He spoke through Peter, He essentially vindicated Jesus. He came in defense of Christ and, and convicted these men's hearts that they were in the wrong and Jesus was righteous. It says, This Jesus, whom, whom you crucified, God raised up again, vindicating Him. And He says, You crucified the Lord of life. And it says when they heard this, their hearts... Were pierced within them, and they were convicted. And the Holy Spirit did exactly what He promised to do, and and He pleaded the case of Jesus, and He convinced the men of the truth about Jesus. And not only, so He's our He's our counselor in reference to Christ, but He's also our counselor in reference to us. He strengthens and defends and assures us. You see, not only does He plead plead Christ's case, but He pleads our case. In Romans chapter eight sixteen, it says that. That the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit, what? That we are the children of God. It assures us of the truth that we are God's children. In First John, it speaks of this as well, which was also written by John, the uh, gospel we're currently looking at. But in First John chapter 3, verse 24, it says, As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. <laughs> 1 John 3, 24. It says, The one who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. It says, We know that we abide in him because of his spirits." It also says this in 1 John four thirteen. It says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Spirit. And see, the Holy Spirit convinces us about... Uh, the truth about us in relation to God. He strengthens and defends and assures us. And this is interestingly why the Older Translations translated the word comforter. Now, you think, whenever you think of a comforter, you usually think of someone who maybe after someone gets in a horrible ordeal, a comforter comes alongside someone and dries their tears, right? And, and pats them on the back and gives them some, you know, some peppermint tea, you know, and, and maybe gives them a couple of, you know, snack cakes and, and comforts them, you know, cry it out, cry it out, right? Well, whenever that word was originally used to translate paracletos, it, it was actually closer to its Latin um, understanding. The word comforter is a compound word. The first word is com, which means with, okay? It, it means to come also. It means to to come, like what it sounds like, and also the next word is Forte. Now, forte, we all know, right? You guys have heard of um, that musical language. What what does forte mean? To sing very loud. It means with strength, okay? And the word comfort means with strength. A person who comes with strength. The word comforter means strengthener, okay? And it's original understanding. Uh, Over time, it changed. And, of course, that's why the translations have changed. And so the comforters are strengthener. he's the one who comes alongside us in our time of need and and this is very interesting you see this is where we must recognize a great cultural difference between the process of seeking legal counsel from the between the ancient world and ours today now today if you want legal counsel, you go to a law firm and you look down their list of names and you find someone who can represent you. And then you pay a whole lot of money to get expert legal advice, right? Because an expert in anything costs a premium, right? And you need that. But this is not the way it worked in Christ's day. In Christ's day, if you came before a court and someone said, you need a Paracletos, you need an... Advocates. You need someone to plead your case. You wouldn't go down to your local Jewish law firm. Okay? What you would actually do is you would most certainly go to your most trusted and longest standing friend. And you would say to them, you, come here, you can tell them the truth about me. You can plead my case because you know me better than anyone else. And you can stand and you can plead my case and you can tell them about what kind of person I really am and you can tell them the truth about me because no one knows me better than you do. And if I can say it this way, this is precisely who and what the Holy Spirit is to us. This is who the Holy Spirit is to Jesus. He tells people. He convinces people of the truth about who He is because no one knew Jesus better. Think about this. Throughout the ministry of Jesus... The Spirit was intimately involved. At Jesus' conception, who came upon Mary to conceive Jesus? The Holy Spirit. At Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on him um, as a dove. At Jesus' t- t- uh, temptation, the Spirit is who drives him out into the wilderness and ministers to him in the wilderness. In, in Jesus' um, first sermon in his home synagogue, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord has rested upon me to preach... Um, Liberty to captives and to set free those who were in bondage in Jesus's ministry and throughout all of his miracles he performed. He performed his, his miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And whenever Jesus went to the crucifixion, it said that he did it in the power of the eternal spirit. And whenever Jesus was raised from the dead, it was by the Holy Spirit. And so and this is the same Holy Spirit that dwells within believers. This is it's, it's the same Spirit that dwelt with Jesus and empowered Jesus. And we are one with Him. And, and, the, and the Holy Spirit pleads within us the case for Jesus because we know that I can preach the Gospel all day and every day and we can do this and we can talk about the truth of the Gospel, but unless the Holy Spirit brings that internal witness and pleads with someone about the truth of who Jesus is, no salvation will happen. Right? Because... That's the difference between proof and persuasion, right? I can offer all the proof all day, but God Himself is the one who ultimately can persuade someone. And He does this by the Holy Spirit. He tells us the truth about who Jesus is, but also He tells us the truth about who we are. And He is the counselor of the same kind as Christ. And so He is this one who is intimately related to Christ, who pleads His case on... Uh, pleads his case on Christ's behalf to us and who, being intimately related to us, pleads pleads our case in relation to God. And also, the last thing we're going to look at is how the Holy Spirit is a homemaker. So the Holy Spirit is our teacher. The Holy Spirit is our counselor. And the Holy Spirit is our homemaker. Now this, like I said already, is true of Jesus. It says this back in John chapter 14, verses two and three In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go into prayer a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And he goes before us and prepares for us a place. And that is truth, that is simply mind boggling. The fact that Christ would not only die for us, but he goes to make a suitable dwelling place for us to ultimately be with the Father. But not only that, it also says that in verse 18 of chapter 14, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And he says that even though he departs, he will not ultimately leave us. He will come to us, and he does that through the Holy Spirit. In verse 23, look at this. Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our abode and we will come to him and make our abode with him. It says that he will make his home with us. And this is done by the spirit. And the spirit makes us a suitable dwelling place for God and Christ. And this is taught otherwise in the Bible. This is taught in 1 Corinthians you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 3.16, it says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit dwells within you? It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So he says you're a temple of the Spirit of God. But here in 1 Corinthians 6.15, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then in verse um, 19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. And it says that God dwells with us by his Spirit. And, and and the Spirit, while Jesus is making a place for us to be with the Father, the Spirit makes us a suitable dwelling place for God. And you know what? This is this is why there's so much difficulty in the Christian life. Think about this. There's much difficulty in, in pain and in trouble and trauma in the Christian life as we struggle with our old old way of, of thinking. And think about it. If you're going to Go to your house and prepare a place for guests. I encountered this this afternoon right after church. I said, Trino, buddy, are you going to come to fellowship lunch? Let's go back and sit together. And he said, actually, um, me and the wife have to go home because we're expecting you and Alicia to come over later. And we have to get the place ready. We have to move stuff around. And we have to get things set up because we're having guests come over. Right? And we have to make the place suitable for guests to come. And, and you know this. If you go home to prepare a place for someone, um, it takes time. It takes sometimes a whole lot of time. And, and why does it take a whole lot of time? And why is it difficult? Because there's so much work to be done. right? If you live like I do, it takes a whole lot of work to be done. Okay? It, it, it takes much to be cleaned up and, and rearranged. There's much to be done. And, and this is true of, of our hearts. There is much cleaning up to be done within us. For us to be a suitable dwelling place for the Spirit of God and for God to come and make His home with us, we have to be a suitable dwelling place for Him. Do you understand that? And that's why the Spirit has this process of making us holy, to make us a suitable dwelling place for the Spirit of God to dwell. And this is interesting. If you think about it, homemakers in the in the worldly sense of the word, homemakers have the danger of becoming relatively anonymous, meaning that is they don't often get recognized, do they? I mean, does the world readily applaud women who stay at home and are homemakers by trade? The world doesn't recognize homemakers, do they? They don't appreciate them. Um, and, And what's interesting is, there's this stark contrast between the way the world recognizes the homemaker and the way the members of the family recognize the homemaker because do the the members of the family love the homemaker and appreciate the homemaker? Yes, because the homemaker is the one who makes everything home. The homemaker is the one who makes everything right and make everything clean and folds all the socks and you know and makes everything uh, suitable for our for, for our dwelling and a suitable for us to live together. The homemaker is often the one who settles disputes between members of the family and things like this. The spirit is the one who, I mean the spirit, the, the homemaker is the one who um, makes everything homely about home. And this is the same thing that the Holy Spirit does among us as believers. And as a matter of fact, this idea that the homemaker is unknown by the world but known by the members of the family, Jesus pointed this out. He says, the world does not recognize him. The world will not recognize the Spirit, but you will. And you will love Him. And like I said, this is the difference between the affection that the world has for the homemaker and that the members of the family have for the homemaker. It's the homemaker that makes everything home. It's the homemaker that makes everything work. And just as, and you need to get this, just as the Holy Spirit was the bond between the Son and the Father... So the Holy Spirit is the bond between the believer and their Savior and the believer to every other believer. Because this is how it works. There's only one Holy Spirit. Okay? Not two, three, four, five, six. There's only one Holy Spirit. And we each are indwelt by that same Holy Spirit. Okay? Fully. We all don't have the Spirit in measure. We have the Spirit in its fullness. But it's the same Spirit that indwells all of us. And so all of us are one with another. We're all members of the same body. We're all, we're all one with another. And there's this great mystery of what's called the, the communion of the saints. How we are not only joined to each other, but we're, we're joined with, as the book of Hebrews called, just men made perfect. Right? Those people who are already in heaven. And, and this is taught, for example, in, in the book of Ephesians. Um, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter four verse three says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And it says, Be diligent to preserve this unity that has already been wrought by the Spirit. It says it doesn't say be diligent to establish the unity of the Spirit. It says be diligent to preserve what already is there. Okay. To preserve something is means it already exists and you just have to maintain it. And the Spirit has united us. We have, been, we have been bonded together by the Spirit, and that's something we should seek to maintain. We are members of one another by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And also, a passage I read earlier that's extremely fascinating to me is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Now, that sounds very personal, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It says, don't you know that you are the temple of God, that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells within you? Well, that word in Greek, you, is plural. It's speaking to the church. It says, you, plural, all of you together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the spirit of God dwells corporately within you. Don't you get that? The church on earth is where the Holy Spirit dwells. The Holy Spirit used to dwell in the tabernacle, used to dwell in Jesus, now dwells among us. We together are the dwelling place of God. And you know, there's a really fascinating parallel that I can't wait to point out here. I discovered it just before I came. But um, it's interesting. It says that the Holy Spirit dwells upon us. And what's interesting is a passage I read earlier. In John chapter 1, you don't have to turn there. Um, Actually, while I'm turning to John chapter 1, you can go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 4. But in John chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And he starts the verse with this interesting phrase. No one has ever seen God at any time, but you have seen Jesus. And Jesus has manifested God to us by His presence here, right? And Jesus said in John 14, that um, to see me is to see the Father, right? But if you look at this, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, an interesting verse, and actually the following verse as well, but First John chapter 4, verse 12 says, No one has seen God at any time. That's the exact same way that previous verse started, isn't it? He says, No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And look at this. There's this parallel like, it says, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus makes God evident. Right? And then in 1 John, written by the same author, he starts a verse with the same exact phrase. He says, no one has ever seen God before, but whenever you love one another, people will see God. People will see what God is like. Didn't Jesus say this? He says, by this the people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. No one has ever seen God at any time. But through Jesus, people saw God. Because He really was God wrapped in human flesh. But now, when the Spirit of God dwells upon us as the church, and as we love one another, and as people see what it looks like for the kingdom of God to be on earth amongst us, as people see the very body of Christ on earth as the Holy Spirit dwells among us, they will see what God is like. And so, Jesus hasn't disappeared. He is manifested today in his church. And people can see what God is like by our love for one another and his spirit dwelling within us. No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so, God dwells among us, corporately, not just individually. And as a matter of fact, this... The Bible speaks more of it corporately than it does um, singularly or or individually. It's more of a corporate identity. That's why the church is so important. And I think that we, we tend to not grasp that, that our corporate identity is more important than our individual identity. And so the Holy Spirit transforms us and makes us a suitable dwelling place for God. And this is why we progressively change. And we progressively change until the day when our dwelling place and the dwelling place of God is the same. Because one day, we will be, we'll be transformed more and more here on earth. But one day, when we're all the way with Him, when our dwelling place and the dwelling place of God is the same, this amazing thing happens. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared, as yet we will be. But we know this. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. Whenever we see Christ and whenever we are finally with Him, we will be perfected. It says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. says we're transformed into the image of Christ more and more and more through the Spirit of God. And one day, we will be perfectly like Him and we will be with Him. And this isn't some mechanical process, something that just happens by accident, but it's a family dynamic. Jesus said, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Just like a person who who rightly loves their parents. A child who rightly loves their father or mother wants to please them and wants to do what they say. Jesus says this in John 14 21 He who has my commandment and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and he will and I will and we will disclose myself to him. And I will disclose myself to him. So this is why it is to our advantage that Christ left us. This is why we should celebrate the ascension. If not with some sort of ceremony or some sort of feast, but we should recognize the significance of us because to what I said in the beginning about the kingdom of God. We right now are not meeting in Jerusalem. We're not gathered around the temple, but we are part of the kingdom of God. And God doesn't dwell in a tabernacle. He doesn't follow us around with a cloud, though we might like that type of theatrics, but He really dwells within us and He makes His place with us so we don't have to pitch our tents around some Place, but we are literally in the kingdom right now and Christ rules the entire universe. And it is our job as a body of Christ to make that invisible reign visible until He comes, until He returns and makes His reign very visible. And he, and, he, and he comes to actually be on the earth and He reigns literally, physically, here when He returns. But right now, He reigns. He is seated at the right hand of God and He's making His dwelling place among us and he is interceding for us and he lives among us and we are to manifest who God is and to show his reign by the way we live and manifest his spirit's work in our lives and so it's to his advantage it's to our advantage that he left and he will come again which we will see next time let's pray together father we thank you so much for the great truth that Christ has ascended and has been seated at your right hand and is in a place of all cosmic authority And God, I pray that we would appreciate the ministry of the Holy Spirit among us and that we would not quench the Holy Spirit, but that we would further his ministry among us as we love one another and as we show what it means for God to dwell among a people bought and sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are people that are going to be gathered together from every tribe and tongue and nation, and your kingdom has no end. It is is a universal kingdom. And God, I pray that we would make that universal, invisible kingdom very visible by the way we live our lives. And God, help us to grasp this phrase that it is to our advantage that Christ has left and that we have Your Spirit among us and within us. And God, may Your Holy Spirit lead us in all truth and may we understand the deep things of You and and the great heights of grace. May May the Holy Spirit plead... Your case in our hearts. And may we understand what it means that we are a temple of the Spirit of God, not just individually, but corporately, and that the Spirit dwells among us and that we can manifest Your presence in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you guys very much. Does anyone have any questions or need any clarifications? Maybe something that you wanted to write down that you missed? Something you want me to explain? Anything? All right, great, thank you. I'm very glad that I actually made it through. <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, like literally, like eight minutes.